As we saw in an earlier episode, London had run out of space for its dead. But by the 18th century, it also ran out of space for its living too. Its living prisoners, that is. Before Americans gained independence, we would just transport our prisoners off to the colonies. But with this being no longer an option, we had to come up with an alternative. And these were hulks, decommissioned ships, turned into convict hulks. Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. And it's to that wonderful project that charts historical criminals' lives, digital panathicum, and the National Archives that we mainly look to today's episode. Before 1775, Britain had a very convenient way of getting rid of the criminals that didn't fit the criteria for hanging or the Tyburn jig as it was referred to, and that was to send them off to the colonies of America. Well, until those pesky Americans decided it had enough of tea as a national drink. And this caused a penal crisis. And the solution? Convict hulks. These hulks were decommissioned and often unseaworthy ships that were moored in rivers and estuaries and they were quickly refitted to become floating prisons. The hulks were intended as a temporary expedient for housing convict prisoners, but they remained in use for over 80 years. And despite the fact they were intended as places to hold prisoners before they were punished in other ways, primarily by transportation, they constituted a form of punishment in themselves And for convicts, they were the only form of punishment they experienced before their release. Transportation as a form of punishment had started in the late 17th century and following the Transportation Act of 1718, some 44,000 British convicts were sent to the American colonies. The end of the colonies as a place to send convicts presented a major problem for the authorities in London since in the decade before 1775, two-thirds of convicts at the Old Bailey received a sentence of transportation. On average, 283 convicts a year. And as a result, London's prisons quickly overfilled to overflowing with convicted prisoners who were sentenced to be transported, but they had no place to go. With this increase of London's prison capacity, in 1776, Parliament passed the Hulks Act. Although overseen by local justices of the peace, the Hulks were directly managed and maintained by private contractors. 
and the first contract to run a Hulk was awarded to Duncan Campbell, a former transportation contractor. In August 1776, the Justia, a former transportation ship moored at the River Thames, became the first prison Hulk. This ship soon became full and Campbell quickly introduced a number of other Hulks in London. And by 1778, the fleet of Hulks in the Thames held 510 prisoners. And demand was so great that new Hulks were introduced across the country. And there were Hulks located in Deptford, Chatham, Woolwich, Gosport, Plymouth, Portsmouth, Sheerness and Cork. The Hulks themselves varied greatly in shape and size and many were decommissioned former naval vessels, but civilian ships were also used. For example, the warrior at Woolwich would hold 400 inmates, whereas the discovery moored at Deptford only half that number. Prisoners kept in the hulk were set to hard labour at dockyards or at the banks of rivers. This was cheap labour. And those in the Thames were put to work improving the navigability of the river by removing gravel and soil from its shores. The work was backbreaking, exhausting and very public. Convict chain gangs also provided a moral spectacle, an example for all who saw them. And the rations provided by the contractors were inadequate, in that they did not provide the convicts with the energy or nutrition required to perform such arduous work. This was done in purpose. The Parliamentary Act authorising the use of hulks stipulated that the convicts were to be fed little other than bread, any coarse or inferior food, i.e. water and small beer. Convicts frequently went hungry and often became malnourished and it was exacerbated by the fact there were no charitable food handouts available to the convicts and the hulks, as there were in conventional jails. In fact, visiting was extremely limited for fears that tools used to escape could be smuggled aboard. And the regime was so punishing that after such a short time, men became demoralised, weak and susceptible to disease. The poor sanitation and the cramped conditions meant that infection could spread particularly quickly. From the first introduction of the hulks, diseases such as cholera, dysentery and typhus were rife. The convict mortality rate was exceptionally high. And in response, diet was improved and better medical care was provided. Prisoners' mental health was also compromised. Amongst other observers, the reformer John Howard noted following a visit to a ship in October 1776 that the prisoners suffered from a depression of the spirits. And so bad were the conditions that during the first few years of the Hulks, the mortality rates of over 30% were common. In fact, between 1776 and 1795, nearly 2,000 out of 6,000 convicts serving their sentence on board the Hulks died. Discipline was severe 
Convicts were frequently locked in irons, in part to prevent the possibility of swimming for their freedom. At night, they were locked in below the deck and the prisoners were simply left to their own devices and amongst the rows of hammocks. Infractions were punished with flogging, extra irons, and for the worst offenders, confinement in the black hole. The bad atmosphere on board encouraged the development of a culture of resistance among prisoners. Convicts could articulate their grievances to prison, prison reformers and physicians, but it took time for the conditions to improve. Prisoners also took direct action and mutinied and committed mass escapes. These were not difficult to organise, confined in large open spaces below deck, there were plenty of opportunity for them to work together and formulate plans of action. There were four mass escapes in the first months after the establishment of the Hulks, and they continued to happen at regular intervals. Transportation was re-established in 1787 with the new destination of Australia. But if the conditions in the Hulks were appalling, worse perhaps were the conditions of the journey to Australia. We see this as follows. Many convicts died as a result of poor conditions on board the ships, a disease environment that could develop, exacerbated by the cramped, unhygienic conditions, the lack of air below the decks, and unsatisfactory nutrition. Punishments meted on prisoners could be harsh. Lashes with the cat of nine tails might remove the flesh from the back, leaving the victim vulnerable to infection. And of the 1,006 prisoners who set sail to Australia in 1789, 267 perished during the journey, and a further 150 died shortly afterwards, over 40%. And the contractors who organised this voyage had been slaving contractors, and they manacled the prisoners using the same irons that were used on slaves for the middle passage across the Atlantic. The journey to Australia was long, and many convicts could not move from their bed, which became soiled and filthy. Furthermore, one of the ships, the surprise, was old and took on water in heavy weather, leaving prisoners drenched and cold, and disease soon multiplied in the festering conditions on this ship. But the hulks continued to be used as a place to keep convicts until they could depart on a transportation ship. Some convicts, for whatever reason, often because they were unwell, were not taken up by a transport ship, and they remained on the hulks for long periods. Even by the early 1840s, these hulks held 70% of convicts incarcerated in England. And to this end, we read that in 1826, convict Henry Adams made a series of allegations and complaints about his treatment on the York and the Antelope convict hulks. Adams wrote that the convict hulks were a totally forgotten place, teeming with every crime that can degenerate a man. Adams claimed that he was kept in double leg irons on the York and that John Henry Capper, superintendent of convicts, read all of his letters 
for fear that Adams would expose the cruelties of Hulk life. Adams also claimed he'd been singled out for harsh treatment because he'd written to Capper about the conditions on the antelope. Officers were acting like drunken savages. The antelope was literally speaking a float in hell. This government knows and wishes to suppress the facts. He stated that the officers in the antelope assaulted him when they found out about his complaints and he'd fought back, for which he was sent back to England for trial and held on at the York. In writing about the York, he complains about cold. When he applied for a blanket, he was given a small one. When he applied for stockings, he had to wait over two months. Nine weeks, I wore a pair without washing, but at length, I was given an old pair, which could not get worsted to mend. If I get wet, I must simply remain wet in my wet cloths. It's impossible to be clean, as I'm now situated. He had no tools to do the work expected of him, and what rations I get is shamefully small. The Home Office investigated Adam's allegations, and with his papers, we find a letter from the overseer of the York Hulk, Alexander Lamb, stating that Adams is treated the same as any other convict. His letter paints a picture of daily life in the Hulk. His slops have been issued to him in the usual manner, bearing in mind that no new slops are issued as long as second-hand ones remain in the store. He receives three and a half ounces of biscuit three days in the week, and the other three one half penny worth of tobacco and a pint of small beer daily as a ration from the ordinance. He is at present employed in the carpenter's shop at the gun wharf, where he makes himself useful and is attentive, though his language is violent, and I certainly consider him one of the most mischievous and dangerous characters. But we do read this account of a day in the life of the convict in the hulks as follows. Up at five in the morning, the convicts rolled up and stored their hammocks. The wards were then unlocked and the men washed themselves in the water troughs and dressed. Uniforms were important as they distinguished convicts from common labourers in the dockyards. Breakfast consisted of 12 ounces of bread and one pint of cocoa. Eating was a silent affair. In 1862, the writer Henry Mayhew visited the fence hulk. He remarked, the men were all ranged at their table with a tin full of cocoa beside them and a piece of dry bread beside them. The messmen, having just poured out the cocoa from a huge tin vessel in which he received it from the cooks, and the men then proceeded to eat their breakfast in silence. The munching of the dry bread by the hundreds of jaws being the only sound heard. After breakfast, the men were employed in a thorough cleaning of all decks of the ship until 7.30am. With the ship in good order, the men were mustered out of the hulks and gangs and rowed out to the work in the dockyards. They were received on shore by officers, quartermasters and guards. Old and infirm convicts stayed behind to cook, clean and repair worn-out shoes and clothes. 
Across the water in the dockyards, the work of healthy men varied. Generally, convicts were put to work unloading ballast and timber from ships. They moved cables, dredged channels, and shifted rubble. All men were required to wear a heavy chain on one or both ankles at all times. If they misbehaved, the weight of their leg irons would be increased. At lunchtime, all convicts returned to the hulks to eat. After one hour, they were ferried back to the yards to continue their work. The process of loading, unloading and marching convicts to work twice a day generated criticism. An 1831 Select Committee report pointed out that so much time was lost in the process that the convicts actually worked two hours less than free labourers every day. Unlike their counterparts in land prisons, convicts moored on hulks and stationed in the dockyards were able to converse with free labourers. Efforts were made to separate convicts from fellow workers, but interaction was near impossible to avoid due to the nature of the labour. Without communication, work would not be carried out effectively, and many men suffered terrible injuries when safety was compromised. The falling of stone and timber resulted in broken arms, legs and amputation. And death was not uncommon and was often covered up by the officials. Prisoners were prevented from working in bad weather as it was thought to be unsafe to send them ashore on dark and foggy days. Escape attempts were feared and men were routinely searched by the overseers. Mehu observed here, the officers proceed to search under the men's waistcoats and examine their neckcloths as to prevent the secretion of clothes about their persons, which would enable them to disguise themselves and to escape amongst the free labourers. No less than 17 such attempts to escape had taken place amongst the convicts in one year, although out of these, only three got off. The work finished at 5.30pm and convicts were rowed back to the hulks and were permitted to wash before supper was served. And the average dinner allowance of each convict on a defence hulk at Woolwich in the 1860s was listed as 6 ounces of meat, 1 pound of potatoes, 9 ounces of bread. But in reality, it would be surprising if it was actually that. Moreover, these convicts were doing hard labour and their calorie needs were much higher. They regularly complained of bad provisions. Contractors were often corrupt and general mismanagement meant that complaints could go unheeded for many months. After dinner, convicts were expected to participate in evening prayers and schoolwork. Men could leave the hulks with more skills than they derived with. In 1817, William Tate, chaplain on board the Captivity and Laurel Hulks at Portsmouth, wrote to the superintendent of the Hulks that the schools in both of his Hulks were flourishing. Tate declared that many prisoners under his care were now writing a good hand, and those who were unable to read when they first gave their attendance could now. The drive for education came from a belief that would prevent re-offending 
but learning to read and write after a day of backbreaking labour in the dockyard is hardly relished. By eight o'clock, the weary men were mustered one last time before bed. Lamps were extinguished and hatches locked at 9pm. Until the later years of the convict pulp establishment, ships were not divided into cells. Prisoners, therefore, could roam the decks freely at night, engaging in conversations, sexual relations and arguments, as well as buying and selling illicit goods such as alcohol and tobacco. And the Hulks Act was periodically reviewed. In 1823, Parliament authorised their use in any British colony, and therefore Hulks were established in Bermuda in 1824, Gibraltar in 1842. In both colonies, the convicts levelled land, constructed roads, and worked on dockyards. Bermuda received some 9,000 convicts up to the point of 1863. The criticism of conditions in the hulks in terms of diet, medical care and mistreatment by officials continued throughout their existence. With the opening of Kentville Prison and the increased use of Millbank Prison from 1843, fewer convicts were sentenced to the hulks, which were increasingly used only for the old and infirm prisoners and those in poor health. After 1852, only two Hulks survived, and the Hulks Act was finally allowed to expire in 1857, but many prisoners were still held in Hulks in Bermuda until 1863 and in Gibraltar until 1875. The image of the Hulks as a nightmarish place of confinement continued in popular culture. And again we read Henry Mayhew from his book, The Criminal Prisons of London. Describing the layout of the ship, he makes a stark comparison between the spacious quarters of the governor and his men and the convicts who were kept behind bars, very much like those found in zoological gardens. Visiting early in the morning, when many convicts were still asleep, Mayhew went on to consider what they might have been dreaming about. Many, he concluded, would not be able to escape the horrors of their situation, even in their sleep. And these horrors were famously evoked in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations in 1861. Each hulk held only one sex, for the most part that was men, there was only ever one hulk for female prisoners, Dunkirk, which was moored at Portsmouth and was in operation from 1784 to 1791. Women sentenced to transportation were deemed unfit to carry out such heavy manual labour, so the Hulks Act stipulated that they were to be confined instead in houses of correction and also at hard labour but with much less demanding tasks, such as beating hemp. Men thought incapable of physical labour were also sent there instead of the hulks. And for a considerable period, youths as young as eight, who were sentenced to transportation, were also kept in the hulks, alongside adult prisoners. And boys, who 
between 11 and 19 accounted for up to 10% of the prisoners, and they lived in the same atrocious conditions as the men, although inevitably they faced additional dangers because of their youth. Around 1825, the Uralists at Chatham became a hulk solely for young boys, and here the regime was especially severe. Boys aged no more than 14 were kept below deck for 23 hours a day and forced to do manual labour. They lived in constant fear of physical abuse from the guards and a culture of gang violence was embedded. From 1838, juvenile offenders were increasingly committed instead to the specially constructed juvenile prison, Parkhurst. And in 1843, the Uralists ceased to be used for young offenders. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one. And if you did, please do leave a review if you haven't already done so. It really does help boost the podcast. And until next time, bye.